Well, it feels a little more balanced, doesn't it? I like it. So some of you guys actually are here from the nine. I'm not going to have you raise your hands, but um, I think, yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for, for doing that. So that's, that helped our earlier service, and I think it's not a problem at this service. So well, good to see everybody. We're doing well. Bill Steffen said the sun shined one full day in the last month, and uh, it's shining today. But that's Michigan, right? And why do we talk about this stuff? Well, because some of us have seasonal effect disorder, <laughs> like myself, so, no. Um, okay, we just finished the Sermon on the Mount, and next week we're actually going to start a four-week Advent series, uh, something that we don't do a lot of at Crossroads, but something we should probably do more of. Um, and I got a couple loud amens in the first service when I said that, um, and, and we know that. Um, and uh, the, the Advent series that we're going to start next week, just hang with me here, okay? Uh, we're going we're to go to the genealogy. Uh, that is the first chapter in our New Testament, and it's crazy that the New Testament starts with what we would consider a boring genealogy. Uh, but that genealogy of Jesus is very unlike the genealogies of his day. Um, just because of that culture, a woman uh, would never be in, in a person's genealogy. And Jesus has not just one, but four women in his genealogy. And a genealogy in that day was one's resume. So he is highlighting. And, and the four women that he has in his genealogy are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Um, and then when you know even who they are, these, these, really what they are, are the mothers and grandmothers of Jesus. Uh, we know more about his family and how he's making us into his family. So that's that. And Neil Martin will be with us. Uh, many of you might not know Neil. Some of you obviously, yeah, Neil. Um, Neil's a big part of this church in the day since he moved to Oxford, England, uh, where he... He right now is thriving on the Oxford campus, work, working with college students. Um, he really is almost a C.S. Lewis of our day, and uh, he, he will be part of that series as well and in town for a couple of weeks. Okay, this week what we're going to do is, you thought you were done with the Sermon on the Mount, but we actually have two verses that we didn't look at last week, and I couldn't let them go. Okay, so we're going to look at the last two verses of Matthew chapter 7. Let's turn in our Bibles, and I don't care if someone has a blue Bible that we hand out. If you want to even just shout out the, the page number of that, you can do that when you get there. Matthew 7, verse 29. Stop acting like you're at church. Someone shout it out. What, what's the page number? 788. We love to stand for the reading of God's word. If that's something you can do, let's do so. Stand with our hearts. I know it's just two verses. But when Jesus had finished saying these things, these things are what we call the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because Jesus taught as one who had authority and not as 
they're scribes, or some of your Bibles say they're Torah teachers, they're, they're, they're teachers of the law, which is their, their Bible. You may be seated. Now, obviously, we're looking at this because I love the fact that Matthew includes these last two verses. The fact that the people, when they heard Jesus preach, were astonished. They were amazed, amazed at his teaching because of what Matthew says or what they said. He spoke as one who had authority. Now, hopefully, in studying that sermon for, I think it was almost four months long, uh, we could get a, a sense of the authority of the sermon as we studied it and digested it. There's this wonderful uh, part in the narrative in the Chronicles of Narnia. It's at the beginning of the story when Mr. Beaver is, for the first time, describing to Susan Aslan, who's come to Narnia to actually break the spell of the white witch. And, and Susan thinks, as he's describing Aslan, that, that Aslan is a man, a human being. But Mr. Beaver says, oh, no. He is a fierce, awesome lion. Susan then asks Mr. Beaver, well, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver responds, who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And that's the sermon to me. There is nothing safe about the Sermon on the Mount. It not only challenges me in every facet of my life, and not just challenge, at times it wrecks me, at times it exposes me, it wrecks and exposes the part of me that I know needs to get wrecked and exposed, the selfish me, the self-righteous me, the self-important me, the proud me, and in that sense, because that's the first step to actually being able to change, this sermon is incredibly authoritative. And at the same time that it does all of that to me, it inspires me. It inspires me to be more, to become more, and not just ethically and spiritually, because at the beginning of the sermon, even Jesus says, you are to be a city set on a hill. Uh, you are to be a, a light to darkness so that when people see your good works, they'll praise your Father in heaven. And those good works or that, that good life that we put on display for the wor world to see that Jesus is calling us to, that word for good there in, in the original language doesn't mean ethically or morally good, it's, it, it's good in, 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 in the beautiful sense, in a beautiful way. And that's what the rest of this sermon then flushes out is how we can be light, how, how um, we can put our good life on display, a beautiful life. Because it's a beautiful, Jesus lived the beautiful life. And this sermon is calling us more, to more than just being ethical and more moral. It's also calling us to walk as Jesus walked. And Jesus walked a life 
No one walked a life as, as beautiful as his. There's authority in that. Massive authority. Because there's always authority attached to a beautiful life. And especially, if any sermon is effective, and I shudder at this every time I preach, I know that there needs to be a life behind that sermon, a, a walk that matches the talk. And look at how Jesus does both like no one. And then last week, we just realized that, that Jesus will now allow us to just listen to this sermon and go, go to our cars afterward and, and say, hey, that was a really good sermon today, and do nothing about it. He absolutely demands a response, a total life response. Is it going to be Christ? Is it going to be this world? Are we going to seek Christ and his kingdom, or are we going to seek the world and, and, and all its stuff? Are we going to choose religion, or are we going to choose Christ? Religion is all about me, where I get to be the hero in this thing. Hey, look how good I am. Christ, it's all about him. Look how good he is. He's the hero. And Jesus says this choice between life and death, heaven and hell. That's what we're choosing between. Not just good and bad. Life and death. Between heaven and hell. There's authority in that. So whoever said anything about Jesus being safe, but here's the deal. He is good and he is the king. Which is why this sermon isn't safe, but it's good, it's beautiful, and it can make us beautiful if we would just allow it by submitting ourselves to it. So I hope as we leave the Sermon on the Mount that there's a game plan in your life to continue to digest this and to make it a huge part of your life. And here's another thing I find very interesting about these two verses we just read, especially since I'm a preacher, and I know this happens. They couldn't help but compare Jesus with the other teachers and preachers of his day. It says they were amazed. And it says Jesus spoke not as their scribes, but he spoke with authority. So I've, I've just pondered, like, now what, what, what does that mean? Uh, the scribes would, would just be all those who were, were trained in Jesus' day, uh, the trained clergy, the rabbis, uh, the, the Torah teachers, uh, the scribes, the Pharisees, all of those people. And they said Jesus had the authority. They, they didn't have it. Now, that this word authority in the Jewish language is the word shmikah. And in Jesus' day, you would not be listened to if, if you didn't have shmikah. Shmikah literally means the laying on of hands. So this goes all the way back to Moses. Look at Numbers 27, 18 to 20. In fact, I have it on PowerPoint. So the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, a man in whom is the spirit of leadership, and lay your hands on him. Have him stand before Eleazar, the priest, and the entire assembly, and commission him in their presence. Give him some of your authority, your shmikah, 
through the laying on the hands, so the whole Israelite community will obey him. So think about who Moses is. Think about how God spoke to him, how God spoke through him. Moses is now taking that authority and he is passing it on to Joshua through the laying on of hands. And this is what Shemekah means. So the Jews believe that this happened, has happened in every generation since, that this authority has been passed on to the laying on of hands, so that by the time you get to Jesus, this Shemekah, this authority, if you had it, it was because someone with Shemekah put their hands on you, and this went all the way back to Moses and Joshua. So what's the question that you have? What's the obvious question? Who gave Jesus Shemekah? Well, this is the question. Look at Mark uh, 11, 27 to 33. Uh, this is just days before Jesus will be hanging on a cross and he's in the temple, and now all the, the best of the best uh, Torah teachers and scribes uh, come to him. It says, they, that's Jesus and his disciples, arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this, this authority, this shmikah, to do this? And Jesus replied, I love this, because <laughs> this is so rabbinical, uh, that you always answer a question with a question. He says, I will ask you a question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from God? Or was it of human origin? Tell me. And then they all go in their little huddle, and they discuss this among themselves. I mean, it'd be so fun to see. And they don't know what to do or say, um, because they're stuck. If we say he's from God, he'll ask, then why didn't you believe him? And if we say he's just of human origin, they feared the people for everyone held that John really was a prophet from God. So they answered Jesus. We don't know. You have no idea what a big deal that is. For the most trained clergy and teachers of Jesus' day to have to say to Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus' response is even better. Then neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Where did Jesus get his authority? What happened at Jesus' baptism when his whole ministry began? As he came out of the waters, the text says that the heavens parted and a spirit like a dove descended and landed upon Jesus and a voice thundered, this is my son whom I love, whom I delight. What's going on? That dove that comes down and lands on Jesus is like God's hand just being placed on Jesus. And that voice from heaven is God saying, his authority comes from me. One of the guys who mentors me, Ray Vanderlaan, 
graduated from seminary, and then continued his studies in a yeshiva, a, a, a Jewish cemetery. Did I say cemetery? I meant to say. <laughs> that applies to both sometimes, that little Freudian slip. <laughs> but um, anyway. He actually said he really became a Christian in this setting because of certain things like, he said he was the only Christian in the class. And all his classmates just knew their Bible, the Old Testament, backwards and forwards. And he said one day they were talking about Shemekah. And he said the rabbi teaching just said, class, do you know that the Christian back there, because Ray said he always sat in the back row, follows the only rabbi in human history who got his Shemekah, his authority from God himself? And Ray was just like, what? He said, he literally started to weep. Like, that's my rabbi. And I love looking at, at, at the authority of Jesus from all these different angles that, that the Gospels give us. In Mark chapter 1, verse 21, it says, they, they went to Capernaum. That's Jesus and his disciples. And when Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. So this is different than the Sermon on the Mount, but it's the same result. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. And then the next story is just as fascinating because you see his authority, not just in the words that he teaches about the text, but uh, then a man who is uh, being seized by demonic oppression, Jesus just says, get out of that man. And, and this is what they then say in verse 27 of Mark chapter 1. The people were all amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority he even gives orders to the evil spirits, and they obey him. A new teaching. What do you mean by new? New as in like clever, new thoughts, new ideas? No, it's what Mark wants us to see, new in that it is authoritative. It packs the power of God to respond store and repair what's broken, to change and, and take what's old and make it new, to redeem and to resurrect. He speaks and the demons obey. He speaks and the storm is stilled. He speaks to a tomb and Lazarus comes out. That's the authority we're talking about. Now look at the next story. Matthew chapter 8. I don't think it's coincidental that this is here because Mark starts it by connecting it to the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus came down from the mountainside. Large crowds followed him and a man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. I don't know what that story does for you partly because leprosy is not something that we even have in our world. The modern world has largely eradicated this awful, deadly disease. 
with the exception of places in some third world countries today. Um, in the ancient world, leprosy was the most dreaded disease because what would start off as a little skin rash would over time spread and all these little bumps and bruises would be off in your body and soon these, these bumps and bruises would turn into lesions. These lesions would be open sores and, 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 and that would spread and your body now was in a state of decay, literally. It was decaying. And as it progressed, progressed still further, um, your fingers would, the skin of your fingers would start to erode and decay. The skin on your face, sometimes parts of the nose, the whole nose, parts of the ears, sometimes the whole ears would eventually just erode off until the point where your body and your face became one big scab. And it stunk. It was just a stench. You became hideous in every way to look at, to, to smell everything, which is why uh, in the ancient world, um, and because leprosy was highly contag contagious, leopards had to live outside their towns and their villages and in these colonies that were called leper colonies. And when they would enter the public... They could only enter the public with their whole body completely covered, including their face, with a hood over their head. And they would have to say, unclean, unclean, unclean. I mean, they truly were the walking dead. Like those zombies in that show, if you watch it. Even today, in third world regions, lepers still are abandoned by family, friends, spouses. They still have to live in, in these leper colonies. I don't know if you know this, but India right now alone has 700 leper colonies. Which is why God's, God's book is going to deal with this. There are two, two chapters in Leviticus 13 and 14 that are here to deal with this, how you are to treat the leper um, how you are not to touch the leper, uh, when a leper is healed, all the protocols. Now, another thing to note here as well, in, in the ancient world, the way that they viewed these things is they didn't have the separation that we do between the physical and the spiritual. So there wasn't a degree of separation between a physical disease and a spiritual disease. Because remember when the disciples approached that blind man, what's their question to Jesus? Not how did this man become blind, it's who sinned? Was it this man or, or, or his parents? Of course, Jesus says that's, that, you're thinking about this, this wrongly, but think about how this was especially true with, with leprosy. I mean, leprosy was seen as being so potent, infectious. So is sin. Leprosy spreads, it contaminates. So does sin. Leprosy makes us hideous. So does sin. Leprosy cuts us off. It brings separation. 
not just with other people, but also separation with God. So does sin. Leprosy brings decay leading to death. So does sin. So I don't think the ancients were all wrong in this because what leprosy does to the body, sin affects every aspect of our lives. We need to respect sin. Jesus comes down from this mountain. The crowds are just packed around him. And he's approached by this man, a leper. Now before you're tempted to put this man in a bucket, don't do it. We're all lepers. Apart from Christ, we are all lepers. I love the details of this story. Mark's gospel tells the same story, but he gives us a detail that Matthew doesn't. This is what Mark's gospel says. When Jesus saw the leper, he was moved to compassion. That word in the original language, it literally means one's insides, one's guts. It literally means to be torn up on the inside. It means to have your guts ripped out. In fact, the the Gospels use this word often. Anytime Jesus approaches someone who's suffering, it literally tears them up. It rips his guts out. Even Jesus, when he teaches in in his parables and, and he's describing a character, like in the parable of the prodigal, Jesus says, when the father saw the son way off in the distance, he was filled with compassion. Literally, his guts were being torn out of him. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, when when the Samaritan passes that that person all but dead, beaten up and bloodied, it said he was filled with compassion. His insides were being ripped out. And here's what we know about Jesus. He's here to show us the heart of the Father. So if you want to know what God sees when he sees a leper, when he sees human suffering, His guts are just being ripped out of him. And I want to say, if you want to know why Jesus preaches a sermon like he does, the Sermon on the Mount, which at times for me, I'll be very honest, it felt like fire and brimstone. I think there were five different times where Jesus says, brings up hell. It's like, Jesus, where's your compassion? It's the most compassionate sermon Jesus could have preached. It's, 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 it's the same compassion that when he sees a leper, that, that causes him to preach the Sermon on the Mount. He so badly wants to help us. Jesus looks at this leper and says, be clean. Again, what's going on here? What's going on cosmically? Because again, what are we seeing? The authority of Jesus' words. He's the king. The spell of the white witch, it's being broken. Jesus 
came announcing that the kingdom of heaven is here, and that is more than a message. The realm of heaven is breaking in. And think about heaven. In heaven, there is no pain. There is no suffering. There is no disease. There is no death. There is no brokenness of any kind. There is no leprosy in heaven. See, that's what these miracles are about. They're they're not just done to prove that Jesus is God because so many people in the story, outside the story, have done miracles. I mean, just think about Elijah and Elisha. We know of at least seven miracles that Elijah did, and one of those was even a resurrection. And then his disciple Elisha comes along and says, I want your shmikah, your authority, but not just one portion. I want double the shmikah of what you have. And Elisha does 13 miracles. And you're like, shoot, why couldn't it be 14? It's double. <laughs> then years later, after Elisha dies, they accidentally throw a corpse into his grave, and that corpse comes to life. There's number 14. And that's the second resurrection connected to Elisha. Now, of course, miracles are proof that God's authority is resting upon someone, but the miracles of Jesus are here to tell us that the, that the new age, the age to come, it's finally arrived. And they show us what this age is about and, and, and what this age will eventually become. This, this new age, I think, is best summarized by the words of Jesus in Revelation. Behold, I will make all things new. And that's being launched. It's beginning. And it's not so much a world moving to the future as much as it is a world returning to what it was. On its first day after creation. And just think about creation. I mean, how did God create the world? How did God bring this this world into existence? I love this new song that we sang. It starts, God of creation. And then later it says, and as you speak, a hundred billion galaxies are born. As you speak, God literally spoke the universe into existence. And the Bible gets even more specific. It it moves from generic God. In, In John's gospel, it begins with these first two verses, and I have it on PowerPoint. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and that's, that's describing now Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, and, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been seen. Christ is the one who spoke this amazing world into existence. This is the authority that we're talking about. This is why the crowds are amazed. And Christ again, like at creation, 
is speaking to the chaos. Be clean. And something as wonderful as creation is taking place. New creation. Now, some little details of a story, especially this one, that make it so amazingly beautiful. I don't know if you noticed, but the leper is the first to break with protocol. Instead of entering this, this crowd of people that's following Jesus and shouting, unclean, unclean, instead, he approaches Jesus, falls at his feet, and worships him. And then says, Jesus, if you are willing, in other words, I know you can do this, but I don't know if you're willing. You can heal me. Would you? I love these stories. Jesus, in turn, instead of scaring the guy away, as everyone would have done in his day, it says Jesus reaches out his hand, he stretches it out to the man. Almost to say, come. And then he touches him. He touches him. Do you understand that no one is allowed to touch a leper? Not even come close to a leper? Read Leviticus 5 verse 3. Touching a leper made one unclean. Now did Jesus touch him because that's the only way he can heal him? No, just read the next story, and it's about Jesus healing a, a centurion's servant, and he just says the word, and he's healed. But here Jesus stretches his hand towards the leper, and he touches him. And this is significant, I think, at two levels. First, when God created the world, only one entity of his creation came to be where God did something more than speak. It's when his hands went into the clay, the Adamah, and he did what a potter does with that clay. He, he shaped it and he formed that clay and then he breathed his, his ruach his breath, his spirit into that clay and that Adamah became Adam. This godlike being. His hands are once again going into the clay and he's reshaping and he's repairing what he made that's broken. Has he touched you? Because Jesus came to repair that leper. And he came to repair us. 
Of course, he came to forgive us of our sins, but he also came to heal us, to reshape us, to repair us, to restore us, to resurrect us. That's why the New Testament doesn't just describe all of this with words like being saved. It uses words like rebirth, being born again. Now, the other significant thing about Jesus touching this leper is think about what Jesus just said in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, I didn't come to abolish the Torah. In fact, he says, even the least commandments are are of unbelievable importance. He says, not only is every word, but even the crossing of every T and the dotting of every I is of utmost importance. Now it's like he just breaks it. God's word says, you are not to touch someone who is unclean. And this leper is clearly unclean because in touching the unclean, that makes the person who is clean, unclean. So what's going on? This is the age to come. This is the age when The unclean loses. The unclean loses its power. And and not just the unclean, but sickness and decay and cancer and blindness and leprosy, sin and death have now come against a higher power. And so therefore, when they encounter like this leper, who's someone who's perfectly pure, Instead of the clean becoming unclean, the unclean becomes clean. He's the king. And his kingdom is being unleashed. And I love verse 4. Jesus tells him to go and show himself to the priest. This again shows that Jesus is not just looking at God's laws and say, okay, now that I'm here, these things are unimportant. He still respects them and, and, and honors them. But what I find incredibly cool is that Leviticus 13 has three specific instructions for a healed leper. The first, they're to show themselves to a priest, and they are to be examined for seven days. And if on the seventh day, the priest sees that the leprosy is gone, on the eighth day, because that's also the day when a a, a child was circumcised, because eight has significance, it's the first day of a new week. It's it's the first day of new creation. That's why Jesus is resurrected on the eighth day, the first day of a new week. But when Jesus instructs this guy, because then on the eighth day he'd be, he'd be declared clean, then the third thing that the priest would, or that the leper would do then is because God made him clean, he would offer a sacrifice to God as an act of worship. Now, Jesus in this story only tells him to do the third phase. And you know why? Because Jesus has already examined him. And Jesus has already made him clean and declared him to be clean. Why? Because he is the great high priest. He is the only one 
who can make us clean. Now, when I read stories like this, I can't help but say, okay, God, if your heart is really that compassionate and you're really this powerful, then why can't you just take out your magic wand and say to all human suffering, poof, be gone, clean, because it's not this simple. One of the names that the rabbis of Jesus' day had for the coming Messiah, they said he'd be called the leper Messiah. That's a strange name. But the reason they concluded this is because they looked at texts like Isaiah 53, where it says, surely he, Messiah, has bore our, bore our griefs he has carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. Those two words, stricken and smitten, are two words that describe every leper. So they're like, whoa, he's going to come as a leper. In fact, there are some rabbis that said, that we need to go to the leper colonies because there we might find the Messiah. Or in the Babylonian Talmud, which is the writings of the sages that date back even before the time of Jesus. Listen to what it says. What is his name? The Messiah, what is his name? The rabbis say it'll be the leper scholar. As it is said, surely he has borne our griefs, he has cured our sorrows, yet we did not esteem him. And there they even translated it, a leper smitten of God and afflicted. And then I read a little further after this story in Matthew 8. And Jesus does two miracles yet. And then you get to verses 16 and 17. And Matthew quotes the same verse through the prophet Isaiah This is being fulfilled. He took up our infirmities. He carried our diseases. And so Matthew's seeing the same thing in the significance of Jesus healing this leper. And this is how Jesus is going to heal the leprosy of our world, how he's going to heal us of our leprosy. He's going to become a leper. All of our unclean is gonna be placed on Jesus. And all of his clean is gonna be placed on us. That's what the cross is. The cross is the most mind-boggling, beautiful thing ever. It's the great exchange. When we come to the cross, All that we are is placed on Jesus, and all that Jesus is is placed on us. So all of our ugly and our hideous, our leprosy, he gets it. And all his righteousness and beauty and clean, we get How do we get it? Look at this leper. Get to Jesus. 
get to him. We have to seek him with everything we have. Look at his faith. I mean, Jesus, in so many of the miracles he does, he, afterward he says, it was according to their faith that I did it. And here this man just says, Jesus, I know you can. You don't have to, but I know you can. That, that, that's faith. And then he gives to Jesus all that we can give to Jesus. All this man can give to Jesus is his need. And he does something that we don't do because we're, we go to church. He goes public with his need. He doesn't care. And in desperation, in front of everybody, he falls at Jesus' feet. And that falling at Jesus' feet is probably the most important thing that we need to do because that is a picture in that world of someone saying, I totally surrender to you. I totally submit my entire life to you. Are you at his feet? Have you surrendered your life to him? He is the king. He is the king. Let's pray. God, I just want to be like this, this leper. God, may we all want to be like this leper. God, may we seek you, Jesus. May we seek you with everything we have. God, may we, may we get to you. Jesus, may we just fall at your feet and worship you. And Jesus, may we know our need for you, that you're all that we need. And may we not come to you to use you. May we come to you just like this leper to worship you knowing that your will be done. And Jesus, we know that you will do what you do when we fall at your feet. And I pray, God, that our hearts, that our hearts will get to your feet today. And God, that you would keep us there in that place of worship. In Jesus' name, amen.